Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. In all human history, there are few stories like that of ancient Egypt. On the banks of the Nile, these people created one of the most enduring and significant cultures. Their tale comes to life in the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore the tales of this amazing culture, from the legendary days of creation and the gods, all the way to Cleopatra, and everything in between. The History of Egypt podcast is written and produced by a trained Egyptologist. We go much deeper than your average documentary or magazine article to uncover tales of life, great endeavours, and the amazing arc of a mighty kingdom. The History of Egypt podcast is available on all podcasting platforms, apps, and websites. Come, visit Ancient Egypt, and experience a legendary culture. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 270, Loss, Suffering, and Enslavement. Today we're going to talk about the very real experience of living in a city which was sacked by an enemy army. It felt only right to address this type of suffering in the wake of the fall of Constantinople. As you can imagine, this is not an episode for young ears. As we've discussed before, the only real account we have of the Byzantine experience of the sack of their capital comes from Nikitas Koniatis. So although we will touch on that today, we will be looking further afield at the wider Roman story of suffering in order to understand the horrors which people went through. So, how do we find people who lived through a sack and wrote about it? Many people were, of course, killed or enslaved in these encounters, so we need people who were allowed to live, who would be allowed to stay behind, or who would be taken away, but then found a way back to the empire. Sadly, we don't have any miraculous escape stories to pass on, but we do have a certain category of people who made it back from their incarceration. When Roman cities were sacked, 
high-profile figures were often kept alive for the ransom value which they possessed. Those sacking a city often tried to maximize their profits by selling captives back to the empire. Or, alternatively, military personnel could be swapped in prisoner exchanges. The problem for us is that soldiers rarely write histories, and few letter collections survive. It wasn't really in a general's interests anyway to discuss his failure and humiliation. So we are looking for administrators or ecclesiastical figures who survived and managed to put their experience down on paper. Historian Adam Goldwyn identified three such figures in his book Witness Literature in Byzantium, narrating slaves, prisoners and refugees. I'm going to take you through their stories to learn about their experience of loss, suffering and enslavement. And we begin, predictably, with Nikitas Coniatis. We already know about our historian's fate during the sack of 1204. He managed to leave with his family, who despite being harassed, got out of the city and made their way to safety. They came to rest at Salimbria, a town about 44 miles west of the capital on the Sea of Marmara. Either they had some property there, or they had friends or relatives who did. The Coniati's family would remain there for the next two years. This doesn't sound like a fate remotely comparable to someone dragged from their home into a life of slavery in a foreign land, but before we get to more distressing tales, we should start here and acknowledge the tremendous loss which Coniates suffered. He was from a prosperous provincial family, his was not a rags-to-riches story, but he had risen to the highest civilian post in the land, still an amazing achievement in a highly competitive line of work. He had whispered in the ears of emperors, he was held in high esteem and owned at least two mansions in Constantinople. Now all of that was gone. His city was in ruins, his career was over, his prestige was gone. Perhaps it's better not to think about rich, urbane coniates at this moment. Maybe you should think about yourself. What if tomorrow your world fell apart? What if you lost your job, not because you were fired, but because the company you work for ceased to exist, and there was no prospect of it being replaced? And your home was taken from you, and all the social and vocational credit you had built up became worthless. Where would you go? What would you do? It's hard for us to comprehend the sense of loss that would accompany the obliteration of your public identity in this way. A man who people had come to for favours every day was now dependent on the charity of others. As you may recall, the farmers by the roadside mocked him as he went past. His misery was a source of amusement to those who had watched in horror as the Latins laid waste their capital. Coniates was filled with despair, which is reflected in his history. He would continue to drift as a refugee for the next few years. His home in Salimbria was taken from him, so he returned to Constantinople, but was not welcomed by the new regime. He didn't speak any Western languages, which was 
pretty much a prerequisite for serving the new Latin Empire. So Coniates and his family migrated to Nicaea, where a new Roman government was forming. And though Nikitas was given work by that administration, it was as a speechwriter, rather than as an administrator. Again, people mocked him. After all, he was in power when the greatest disaster in Roman history took place. He was discredited and was left to write begging letters to old friends and acquaintances, none of whom could restore him to his former status. His family lived in wooden accommodation on the lakeside for the rest of his days. Again, it's hardly the story of immense suffering that many others had to bear, but it is a story about a man whose certainties were all taken away by the sack. We have to imagine how we would feel if, say, the banking system collapsed tomorrow and our life savings were wiped away in a moment. All the hard work we had put into building our safety net destroyed, and few are offering sympathy for our plight. Seeing your home, your hometown, and the pride of your nation destroyed is one that leaves an existential sense of loss on those it touches. Understandably, Coniates was never the same again. Our next eyewitness to a sack is Eustathius, or Evstathios, of Thessaloniki, who you may recall was the bishop of that city when the Normans attacked it in 1185. This was in episode 252 of the podcast. The Normans sensed weakness in the power vacuum which followed the death of Manuel Komnenos, and dragging a fake heir to the Byzantine throne with them, they sailed for the empire's second city. Eustathius refused to abandon the city in its hour of need and attempted to support the defenders. But they failed, and the bishop was forced to watch in horror as the enemy army poured through the gates. This is what he says happened next. The high-ranking residents of the city were all huddled in the citadel when the breakthrough happened, but realising that they couldn't survive there, they dispersed. As he made his way down through the streets, the bishop saw citizens committing suicide rather than fall into Latin hands. People were jumping off buildings or down wells as their stunned prelate passed by. Eustathius headed for his home, the bishop's official residence, which was only natural but may also have been about self-preservation. As we discussed earlier, High-ranking Byzantines had the potential to avoid being killed if they could demonstrate quickly to invading soldiers who they were. The city's bishop was an obvious figure to ransom back to Constantinople, and so Eustathios was best off at his home in his vestments or other easily identifiable clothes and flanked by his staff. Norman troops soon arrived and the assembled clergy were taken outside, Eustathios flinched at the field of raised swords facing him, and as he moved, men jabbed at them, hit them, and mocked them. The soldiers enjoyed pretending to rear their weapon for a stab as they led the priests to the city's hippodrome. There he was handed over to one of the Norman captains, 
who took charge of their care and led them down to the harbour. They were led on horseback, which was a mixed blessing. The bishop could now see clearly over his captors to the immense suffering which his flock were experiencing. Dead bodies littered the roadside, while the beatings and killings taking place further away were now visible. The clergy were loaded onto one of the Norman ships, alongside many other captives, all weeping and wailing. They were held there for several days, where they could barely sleep and had nothing to eat. Eventually, as the sack settled down, they were led back to the patriarch's residence. The Norman commander of the expedition took them off the ship because he did not intend to sell them back to the Byzantines, not yet anyway. The Normans were here to occupy the city, and they wanted the bishop's help in calming the terrified populace. Eustathios and his staff were forced to live in the garden for a week, with Latin soldiers using the same location as their toilet. Eventually, Eustathios managed to negotiate with his captors, who gave him a large amount of money, the purpose of which was to buy food for the remaining population of the city. The Norman occupation would end up lasting for three months, and so they had to provide for the needs of the remaining Roman citizens. Finally released from his confinement, Eustathius was able to move about the streets, where he could now witness the pitiful state that his people were left in. After securing the city and its major buildings, the Latins were now going house to house, turfing people out and emptying their homes of anything of value. They tortured people who they suspected of having hidden their valuables. They killed domestic animals for fun and then arranged corpses in quote-unquote amusing positions, people and animals placed in intimate embrace. The bishop writes about clergy being killed and churches desecrated. He concedes that some churches were protected, but others were targeted by thugs who slashed at icons and urinated on altars. He talks about rape, of married women and of nuns, of gang rapes. He claims that during the day the officers could bring their men under control, but at night it was impossible to keep everyone quiet. The shrine of St. Demetrius, the patron saint of the city, was targeted, hacked to pieces, and all its precious ornaments looted. As he passed through the streets distributing food, he saw parishioners living in the gutter, or alleyways, malnourished and poorly clothed. The Normans were sleeping in their homes. Many people were forced to beg their captors for coins or crumbs. Some had their hair or beards cut off as a further humiliation. The Normans were gone, though, after three months. As you may recall, their attempt to advance on Constantinople in the wake of Andronicus's death was thwarted. The Romans counterattacked and swiftly drove the Latins away. Thessalonica was quickly abandoned, and the few unfortunate Latins who lingered too long were beaten to death by the revenge-hungry citizenry. The sack of the city was obviously a grim affair, but many escaped the worst of its depredations, Large numbers of Thessalonians had fled the city when news reached them of the Normans' approach. While those who stayed behind avoided being sold into slavery, 
because of the way the war played out. Eustathius, like Coniates before him, escaped personal harm, and as a celibate bishop he had no immediate family to fret about. But witnessing these horrors did have a profound effect on him. Like Coniates, he was humiliated and discredited by what had happened. He was God's representative in the city, and the divine powers that be had abandoned him in his hour of need. He had encouraged men to stay and fight, and then had to come face to face with their mourning families whose lives were being violated by the enemy. Eustathius already had a difficult relationship with many important sections of the city's populace. That would only get worse after this. He wrote up his account of what took place in a sort of sermon which he delivered to a crowd of people a couple of months after the Normans had left. Many of those listening had been absent when the worst happened, and so Eustathius was keen to present himself in a positive light. How did he explain the immense suffering of those he was meant to protect? It was their sins which had brought this calamity down upon them. Not just those who were killed or tormented, but everyone, all the people of the city had sinned repeatedly, and God had delivered a sharp rebuke. He warned them that similar punishment might come again if this sinful behaviour remained unchecked. But one suspects his words rang with a certain hollowness around the churches of the empire's second city. As you can see, we've been moving back in time to find our witnesses, and we now move back a considerable distance to the early 10th century. We are also escalating in terms of horror, and our final story is more distressing and brings us face to face with the really ugly realities of enslavement. Coincidentally, it involves the previous sack of Thessaloniki, which took place in 904 during the reign of of Leo VI. The Romans had just turned the tide in the battle with the Caliphate. Raids into Anatolia were starting to become easier to repel. But at sea, they were harsher than ever. You may recall that Arab pirates had seized the island of Crete, bringing seaborne raids to the shores of the Aegean. The man who led this particular attack was also called Leo, a Roman sailor from Italia who had converted to Islam in captivity. He knew the empire's weaknesses and was now in charge of the Syrian fleet based at Tripoli. In the summer of 904, he chased the imperial navy back towards Constantinople after a confrontation at the Hellespont. Leo now knew that the coast was literally clear. No one could stop him from descending on Thessaloniki and assaulting the walls. This is what he did, and after a brief siege his marines broke through the gates. The unprepared Thessalonians were shocked at what was happening. An account of what took place was written by a certain John Caminiates, a chamberlain in the bishop's household. His slightly less exalted status, and the fact that he recorded his thoughts in a letter, meant that he could be more candid than our previous two witnesses. 
He describes with an eloquent horror the first few moments of the sack. As the gates break open and families began to lose control of themselves, weeping and wailing, but also hugging their children, utterly despairing at the thought of being separated from them. He puts words into the mouths of horrified fathers, asking aloud, Was it for this that I reared you diligently? For this that I entrusted you to the care of teachers and struggled to make it possible for you to distinguish yourself among your contemporaries? He watched husbands telling their wives to run, saying goodbye forever. Again he imagines the dialogue, We can no longer share our lives until we end our days. Would that we had never set eyes on these children who now stand round us. Would that our own hands had laid them in the grave, and that they had not been preserved to serve as hapless slaves to these wild beasts. Brother ran into brother, friend saw friend, each crying and screaming at the prospect of separation or worse. He says, simply by virtue of the immense number of individual laments, the air was filled with a meaningless babble of voices, as though sheep had been penned up for slaughter and were crying out in wild confusion. Some began to run off in the direction of their homes. Others leapt inside churches, hoping for sanctuary. Many tried to escape, but great crushes took place at the city gates as people trampled each other in their terror. John served the bishop along with his father and two brothers, and like Eustathius, 280 years later, had taken up refuge in the citadel. Two others joined them, and they decided as a small group of clergy to stick together and attempt to negotiate with the first enemy soldiers they encountered. They had some cash on them and could offer more. They huddled in one of the city's defensive towers and waited. Less fortunate citizens stood outside, and when a group of Ethiopian soldiers, as he calls them, appeared, everyone begged for mercy. The Muslim troops were in the first flush of excitement, though, and simply hacked away at the defenceless crowd, who fell to the ground dead. Horrified, John made a big show of the gold he was carrying to the soldiers until they calmed down. Eventually, through hand gestures, the priests convinced the Saracen forces not to kill them. They handed over all the precious items they carried and indicated that there was more where that came from, if they were allowed to live. The enemy troops formed an escort and began to lead them down into the city. The walk down to the harbour was itself a harrowing experience. First, another group of Ethiopian, i.e. dark-skinned soldiers from somewhere in the caliphate, came upon them and tried to attack them. Their escort had to ward them off, but not before they took some nasty blows. Next, they were led to a church and thrown in with a crowd who was seeking sanctuary while their captors took a breather. But again, another group of soldiers came running in with their blood up and began to slash and slaughter the unarmed civilians. Moving swiftly on, the group reached the harbour where their captors found a comrade who spoke Greek. He explained the deal to them. Take us to where you hid all your money and possessions. If they are there, then you will live and be ransomed back to your government. 
but if the gold isn't where you say it is, you'll be murdered on the spot. They staggered back up the hill to the hole where they'd stashed all their money, and fortunately, it was all still there. Their captor's mood changed, and they were assured that they would now be safe. But as Eustathios would later experience, this relief only allowed them more headspace to take in the tragedies around them. They were led through the city's main streets where they saw fresh corpses littering the pavement, dripping with blood. They saw people they knew among the slain and grieved silently. Eventually one of the leaders of the expedition came to see them and confirmed that he would be taking them back to the caliphate to be part of a prisoner exchange. Remember, the Romans were now capturing Arab soldiers during their Anatolian raids, and so swaps could be arranged. The clergyman saw imperial agents, the strategos of the city, and other senior men being held in the same place. It's only at this point in the narrative that John admits that he and his fellow captives were not celibate, as Eustathius would be. Most had wives and children, who they had clearly abandoned in order to save their skins. The assumption being, based on this narrative, that women and children who huddled in safety were more likely to be enslaved than slaughtered. That must have been their reasoning. Had they stayed with them, they would have been cut down. And like Eustathius, they wanted to present themselves clearly as senior men worthy of ransom. Now resting under guard, John admits to being sick with worry about his own family's welfare. He did ask if they could be brought to them, but to no avail. It was the height of summer, and John describes watching people's faces becoming discoloured, haggard and drawn. Dehydration was a major concern for all involved. I'm sure we've all been in intense situations, even if it's just a, a sporting contest where thirst builds up quickly. Imagine the intensity of what John has just been through for hour after hour without a drop of water. He describes everyone he could see as desperate for a single drop. They begged their captors to let them drink sewer water, even though they knew it might make them sick. Wounded captives were thrown into their place of confinement, and those who made too much noise were simply killed to shut them up. For ten days, these clergymen remained in the same spot, waiting for the Saracens to empty the city of its wealth. Other men appeared and made promises of hidden treasure. Those who failed to come up with the goods were killed. If you've ever wondered who was targeted for slavery during these sieges, Kameniates provides a very clear answer. All the prisoners who were not for ransom were children or young women. There was not a single boy who had grown his first beard, nor in all those thousands was there even one woman of mature years. This was who made the best slaves and would offer the least resistance. The Muslim forces divided up those who were related to one another so that they couldn't travel together, perhaps to break their resistance or to stop people advocating loudly for the needs of others, perhaps to prepare them for a slave's life, John muses. Only babies still breastfeeding were left with their mothers. It was impossible for anyone who paused to consider them individually 
not to break down at the sight of their misfortune, he says. This terrified cohort of young people screamed and cried as they were herded onto different ships, along with chests full of loot. According to John, 54 ships had attacked the city, and the enemy spent those ten days repairing and outfitting any other vessel they found in the harbour in order to be able to remove as much loot and human cargo as possible. The ships set sail, and John describes the desperate conditions he faced in the hold. His group of five were all shackled to the floor, but many of the hundreds of prisoners who were shoved into the same space were not. So determined were their captors to make as much money as possible from the expedition. They packed us in together so close to one another, so tightly pressed and so relentlessly squeezed, that the entire multitude presented the single aspect of one continuous body. Everyone was suffering from exhaustion, hunger and dehydration. Now they began to suffer painful bruises from their confinement, not to mention the smell of so much humanity and their waste being contained in one room. The most pitiful sound was that of babies crying uncontrollably amidst the crowd. Their first stop was the island of Patmos, not far from Rhodes. They spent six days there and were able to leave their confinement briefly, but their only food was maggot-infested bread, and they continued to beg for more water. The dead were also carried out during this break, children and babies who had expired in the harsh environment of the hold. Lice now spread amongst the prisoners, who all cried out for help, but received nothing but abuse from their captors. Their arrival on occupied Crete was the first bit of relief they'd had in weeks. They were allowed off the ship and led towards a river. They all collapsed on its banks, gulping fresh water and washing themselves. The prisoners were allowed to mingle, and families tearfully reunited, though they all knew it wouldn't be for long. The next passage is as significant as it is heartbreaking. Hapless women were wandering about with dishevelled hair and tear-stained eyes, looking around in every direction to see which of their children they would come across first. The children, those that had survived the ordeal at sea, were weeping in a piteous and heart-rending fashion, like tender young calves that bellow piteously when they are being weaned. But what of the others, whose babies had perished at sea, and who had no idea what had happened? How shall I describe their state of physical agitation? How, unable to restrain the tide of their emotions, they tore their clothes— how they would not keep still for a moment, but wandered aimlessly around, completely at the mercy of their own irrational impulses, and casting glances in all directions, in the hope that they might somewhere catch sight of one of their loved ones, or contrive to hear from someone with first-hand knowledge of their fate, and thus bring some relief to the anxiety that was preying on their minds. Only later in the text does Kaminiates reveal that his wife and children were there 
on the slave ships. He was reunited with them at this point. And then mentions in one line that his third child had perished at sea. In her excellent book on gender in Byzantium, Leonora Neville analyzes this passage. Kameniates is writing this account in a letter to a fellow clergyman. She points out that as a Byzantine man, John was expected to be in control of his emotions, and able to deal with things rationally. And so he describes the frantic behavior of women who've lost their children, but doesn't mention men at all. And yet we discover later that most likely he was one of those parents, rushing around the riverbank, searching the faces of the thousands of young people there, desperately hoping to see his own child amongst them. The captives spent ten days on Crete, with many being sold off to the local Muslim population or other slave traders. John's brother's wife was sold off, while his brother was waiting there, unable to do anything about it. The desperation and hopelessness was horrendous. John's own family, by luck, were not sold at this point. They were destined to be, though. They had been taken on board a Syrian ship, and so, like John, were headed back to Tripoli. It's not clear if he ever saw his wife and children again. The flotilla sailed for Cyprus before the final leg of the journey to Syria. The Romans were paraded before the cheering citizens and then separated for good. The important hostages were taken to a house to await a prisoner exchange. To add to his suffering, John's father died while they waited there. Drenched in mourning, John, his brothers, and the other senior officials were finally moved to Tarsus, where they were held, awaiting an exchange with the Romans on the borders of Cilicia. It was here that Caminiates briefly met another cleric from Cappadocia, who he wrote this letter to. In it, he praised the Stratikos of Thessaloniki and his subordinates for their valiant attempts to defend the city. It was this detail which probably persuaded them to take a copy of the letter back to Thessalonica with them when they were exchanged for Muslim officers that autumn, a year after the sack of their city. But the exchange of prisoners broke down after five days, as best we can tell, so we have no idea if John ever made it back to Byzantium, or if he was settled within the caliphate or sold into slavery. It's very hard to absorb the level of suffering which he and all those he travelled with were forced to endure. Well, I hope that's cheered you up if you were in a bad mood. It's the part of history that we never really discuss. We always talk about great men who captured cities, but we don't dwell on what happens to those trapped inside. I hope that that helps balance out my coverage of the sack of Constantinople. I was keen not to perpetuate the myths of its horrors, but I also wanted to honour the suffering of those who experienced it. 
If this is a subject you'd like to explore, then Adam Goldwyn's book, Witness Literature in Byzantium, contrasts these experiences with the literature of modern tragedies, including modern slavery and the Holocaust. It's not light reading, obviously, and it's also a very academic book, getting into the psychology and serious literary analysis of those who wrote about these horrendous experiences. If you'd prefer just a taste of it, then check out Anthony Caldellis's podcast, Byzantium and Friends, where he interviews Adam in episode 60. That is the end of this century of narrative at last. Over the next couple of months, I will have some interesting interviews for you, including one next week. And then it will be back to the newly minted Latin Empire to find out what happens next. While you're waiting, if you would like some bonus content from the History of Byzantium, then go to patreon.com forward slash history of Byzantium and sign up there at the $6 level. Um, This will include an episode coming up in a couple of weeks where I discuss Game of Thrones, uh, historical comparisons to Byzantium and a little bit of TV critic-ing as well, uh, which I couldn't resist. Uh, If you would like different history audio to keep you going over the next few weeks and months, then why not check out the History of Egypt podcast? Egypt is one of those cultures that doesn't need much selling to get you excited. The pyramids, the Nile, Tutankhamun, Cleopatra, and uh, plenty of human suffering, if uh, you've enjoyed today. Dominic Perry, the host, is an Egyptologist himself, so you're getting your podcasting gold from someone working in the field right now. Check out EgyptianHistoryPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts, just search for The History of Egypt. The History of Egypt.